This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello, welcome to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Blood. I'm a historian of military culture and war. I hold a PhD and have published two books on German history, examining war, security and the Holocaust. Today, my guests are Professor of Anthropology, Mark Axel Tveskov from Southern Oregon University, and Ashley Anne Bissonette. Assistant Professor of Public Health at Eastern Connecticut State University. They are editors of a book called Conflict Archaeology, Historical Memory and the Experience of War, Beyond the Battlefield, published by the University of Press of Florida in 2023, and which includes a foreword by Professor of Anthropology Paul Schakel at the University of Maryland. Mark and Ashley have published a remarkable collection of essays which it would be fair to say military historians might overlook at first glance. There are contributions from scholars and experts with a broad range of subjects spanning battlefield archaeology, anthropology, genocide, memory and race. There are 12 chapters with maps, illustrations and diagrams. The topics and themes include ontology, the historical question of human remains, Understanding Historical Trauma, The Microhistory of Conflict and Memory, and How Wars Have Shaped Collective Memory. In opening our conversation today, I would like to offer an example of where beyond the battlefield lies in the field of war and conflict. The Library of Congress classifies the book under history, collective memory, and social science. However, this book has a wider vision, and this can be grasped from its treatment of the Battle of Saipan in 1944. In 1981, Colt Denfield published a Micronesian archaeological survey recording Japanese fortifications. Fifteen years later, he published in the popular After the Battle magazine an article called The Battle of Saipan. It was a short, then and now piece, but framed entirely for a military history readership. In Beyond the Battlefield, Jennifer McKinnon contributed a chapter about the battle from an entirely different viewpoint. The only time the authors meet is in references to the last command post and the battle's casualties. McKinnon wrote about everything Denfield ignored, which included the indigenous populations, the history of the islands before colonisation and local memory. Thus we face the stark differences between traditional military history and the field of conflict archaeology. Ashley. Mark, 
Welcome. Can I ask you to give the listeners a brief description of your book describing conflict archaeology and what you mean by Beyond the Battlefield? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good to be here. And our book is a, a long time in coming. It's, a, it's a, first and foremost a collaborative effort among um, scholars who all found themselves on similar tracks. And the Beyond the Battlefield part of it references the fact that since the 1980s, archaeologists have been um, dealing with battlefields in kind of a forensic way, and that is a, a new approach for our field. But after 30, after 30 years of that, um, we've had a lot of uh, productive engagement with battlefields from a forensic scientific point of view. But I, I feel, and I think most of our co-authors feel that we need to move a little bit beyond that to contextualize those battlefields into a larger social history, thinking about how we remember battles and the different visions of how we remember battles and um, a whole bunch of different topics like, like trauma, whose stories are being told and not being told, um, and why different stories are resonate in different contexts. Yeah. And just to add to that, thank you for having me. I think along the lines too, our methodology methodology has changed to include the actual communities. So if we're on the battlefield, if we're doing the archaeology, we have the community with us. They're helping us. They're volunteering. They're adding their perspectives and they're really seeing how their communities have changed over time, but how they can be part of the process of building that history moving forward and that it is a lot more than conflict. Can I, can I ask something there? The, the word you use, forensic, mm-hmm. that can be used to indicate or suggest being detectives, like battlefield detectives. Is there an essence of that? Yeah, that was the sense I, I, I use. I mean, we use the word forensic to um, encompass looking at human bodies, but that, and that's not how I meant it. I meant more the empirical, deductive examination of the distribution of artifacts and other features across a battlefield to construct a, a story that adds an independent um, line of inquiry into understanding the passage of a battle. And that is the essence of what's called battlefield archaeology. And we're, and to be clear, we're not rejecting it. We all practice that, but we also want to contextualize that in with um, other kinds of approaches. But do you think traditional um, military history, in this sense, helps the battle, helps you to understand or appreciate the battlefield archaeology, or are you looking at the, the the entire project from a fresh page? The essence of how I think about this subject is a multi-vocal approach. The more voices at the table, the better. It should be a dialogue between different perspectives. Um, so in that sense, and I'm, I'm think, uh, as you asked the question, I'm wondering how we define traditional military history, because that could itself, of course, has different approaches. So I, for me, I wouldn't, I, I, the more the merrier. And to me, it's the... Um, uh, what is the word? The 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 dialogue and the 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 back and forth between the different perspectives that is is the most interesting part of doing this work. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It, these different perspectives too. I think we have the traditional military archaeology, but when we add those in, we see the complexity. And especially for um, some of the battlefields that I've been involved with, looking at indigenous ways of 
navigating the battlefield, it's a lot more complex. So it's it's great to have all those and mold them together and see what we get. My, my PhD supervisor was one of Britain's finest military historians. And the interesting thing he kind of came to terms with was military history had its limitations. And he was increasingly frustrated with the idea of flags on maps kind of history or, or what we call him in some corners in Britain, drum and musket history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on, yeah. sorry, Mark. The, and they're, because that's the classic conundrum, right? I mean, I've, I've, I grapple with flags on maps all the time, but wherever there's a flag on a map, there's a bunch of people um, Precisely. behind those flags and maps. And I am not a veteran by, I am not a veteran, um, but if when you engage in the, in the uh, memoirs and memories of combatants, the inevitable thing that is said was that the flags on maps don't capture the experience of being there. Now, obviously, there's a there's a three thousand foot view of battlefields that's valuable, but yeah, the the flags on maps um, misses as much as it captures. Yeah, I, I mean, in my research, I, I it wouldn't have worked for me at all. Um, but if we if we just went back to the Colt Denfield um, McKinnon comparison. Yeah. The interesting thing that that happened with me was when I read, after I read your book, I went immediately to the after the battle article because I was it's just something I could remember it, and I went back to it and I looked at it. It's very old now, mid nineties, and it it was very striking that McKinnon's chapter was so much more richer because she was engaging with locals who were witnesses of the battle who were completely yeah. written out of the history. Yeah. And, and Dr. McKinnon's chapter, Jen's uh, chapter in some ways was the genesis of this whole project because I had gotten a grant to do uh, research at a battlefield of the wars between indigenous people and pioneers in the American West. And I was at a conference in Washington, DC and I saw a, uh, uh, Jennifer's paper about Saipan. And to me, it was an eye opener for the exact reasons you just said. And that got me thinking about this. There is the battle and then there is beyond the battle and, and the different voices that are, that haven't been heard in the past. And, you know, my own experience as a child of the 1970s is I grew up in the shadow of world war two with a memory of war that was very patriotic and sort of monolithic and featured, you know, Sherman tanks and General Montgomery and um, Douglas MacArthur and, and aircraft carriers in the Pacific. And nowhere in there were indigenous people keeping their heads down in caves while the Japanese and Americans fought over their heads. And I still value and still think about, you know, the traditions of military history that that are the professional versions of that patriotic, you know, post-war uh, approach to history. So I, I, again, I don't reject that, but to me hearing uh, Dr. McKinnon talk about the cave in Saipan was just kind of a revelation. I'm like, whoa, this is what we could do with this kind of archeology. span And it fits right into the larger uh, project of anthropology and archeology. span And of course, in the United States, archaeology is more often in an anthropology department, which is, I think, usually different in in Europe. So that idea of of cross cultural voices 
coming to bear on an issue, it fits right in. So that, so yeah, the, the Saipan article, that was in some ways the genesis of this project. Well, it was very interesting that Denfield pretty much dismissed the lost command post. Just say to listeners, the lost command post is a myth. But that aside, he dismissed it within a sentence. Whereas McKinnon described the whole reason for its existence and why it was important. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah. Was in, that was in itself something you don't think about because initially, you know, you're trying to preserve a battlefield, you're looking at its importance, you're looking at the indigenous and, and, and the whole uh, the whole scene. But she was actually saying that there's a value in the tourism, which is protecting the sites. Yeah, exactly right. And and that is the other sort of thrust of our book is the disconnect between the historical facts over something like the last command post, that it isn't sold to the public as a matter of historical tourism. It's not sold as what it actually was, but that doesn't stop people from consuming it. So that's the that's the memory piece, like the the way that um, we differentially remember, you know, monuments to war and historical facts as a as a political um, as a as a political project as a social construct. It it also occurred to me that with with Ash being in public health, or, or, or as I understand it, to be in public health, how the how these people are living. And those islands, with all of that war detritus around them, and I think there's a mention of bodies <laughs> or human remains, and it just struck me as very odd. <laughs> I, yeah. I just never really thought about it because obviously over here, all the battlefields have been cleansed one way or another, so there's there's very little detritus. The only time people find anything is with these, you know, these Geiger, what do you call it, these uh, metal detectors. Uh, sure. So, yeah, the disease and the actual experience is definitely part of the picture. Um, and we've seen the, the role of disease and how health can really change a complete, um, you know, a battlefield itself. But going back to the monuments and public health, it is, you know, history is political and politics really dictate resources for communities and so on. And it goes back into the tourism and bringing Native people back into tourism and back into the economy. But I, I think, too, it goes back even more. If you think about conflict itself as one of those mechanisms that just tears away culture, but that includes foodways, that includes, um, again, trade and economics, that includes all sorts of different things that impact health. So public health is just about anything that impacts one's health. So we're looking at all these different uh, factors, and that brings us back to the core of the book, the social experience. So we're looking at all those different things. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, or should we move on to specifics? Uh, let's move on. Yeah. yeah. Okay, if I may, I'd like to start with Professor Shakel's forward, where he mentions grassroots, grassroots, excuse me, grass roots movements in the United States. And my question was, are, are the micro histories in your book a direct response to the increasing politicization of local memory and nostalgia? A direct result or a direct consequence? I think it's just part of the same, I think it's just part of the same movement. Uh, yeah, in the, in, the, in the last few years, uh, there has been dissatisfaction with received narratives um, 
from diff- many different directions. And I, you know, there's different ways to think about that and, and, and the reasons for it. So I see it as, um, as, as just part of that chorus of dissatisfaction with, with received narratives and, um, and in within, within archeology, span um, the, uh, the idea that, that we could do more with battlefields than, than just put the flags on the maps. And so in that sense, it is a local movement. And to, to, uh, just to put that a little bit further, when I've done battlefield archeology, span we're in the field uh, tracing musket balls or whatever across the, across the, the ground, but inevitably I'm working with um, amateur military historians who are really interested and eager to help and indigenous partners and other archeologists. And then the conversations we're having over lunch end up being very interesting and going beyond um, you know, the distribution of musket balls. So that is the local discourse that I think we were trying to elevate in this book to some extent. Ashley, did you want to add? Yeah. And I, you know, I always get the discussion in public health, what does history have to do with public health? And I think this is a really good way of tying them together is that, you know, there are people who are still dealing with some of these experiences on the landscape today and understanding a little bit more of what had happened on those landscapes instead of just kind of, you know, what you're taught in grade school or what you're taught in college and these textbooks that are just, again, don't have that social experience. So I think it's, these are, I think there's a push forward to say these are still relevant. Um, and yeah, in the politics too, so. Do you see, let me take this back. In Europe, there's an awful lot of um, references to nostalgia, nostalgia of, a, of different kinds of pasts, um, specifically um, common now in Britain with certain kinds of history focusing on certain memories. In Germany's different kind of nostalgia. Is this impacting on your, on your um, micro histories, or, or is that not a factor? I think it's almost a rebellion against nostalgia. The uh, the the construction of memory of conflict is so embedded in narratives of triumphant nationalism and patriotism, and as the 1970s and 80s and 90s proceed into a into you know a, a loss of agency in the in the middle class in in the United States and the uh, um, growing voices of indigenous people and people of of color in the United States. It's like the being confronted by these monolithic memories embodied in things like statues of historic people. Um, that is the nostalgia and that nostalgia is not satisfactory. So the local movement that tears down a statue and throws it into a canal is that's like a, a local political social movement. And I kind of see our project as the academic side of that, although hopefully not quite so violent. Can I introduce something that I literally just thought about? Are you saying this is also a reaction to the good war generation? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the good war generation, the greatest generation. Is it the, uh, that's it, the greatest? Tom Brock called that content. You know, uh, again, I grew up in the shadow of that narrative and I am 
personally in my family is a direct um, beneficiary of the sacrifice of that generation. So I am not free of the of of the appreciation of that greatest generation narrative or the good war narrative, you know, but having said that, it, it is so imperious that narrative as well. And it masks many contradictions um, that it masks a lot of historical and social contradictions. And I come from a place of relative privilege in my own, in my own society. And I felt those contradictions growing up. Um, my start as an archaeologist came working for the Mashantucket Pequot tribe in the Northeast, who, who are where I grew up. And my entire childhood, it was as if they didn't exist at all. And it was only till I started doing this work that I, that I, I learned that they were a living community with this complex and traumatic history. So, um, so I felt those contradictions and wanted to do something about that. And then if you put yourself in the position of an indigenous person, say in the United States or a person of color in the United States, um, how would they feel growing up with the, the, um, imposition of the imperious greatest generation narrative over them when they were somewhat left behind, you know? So that's, so I'm kind of losing the thread of where we started this. I understand what you're saying about the greatest generation. I mean, to, to wheel you back to kind of broader thoughts. I mean, one thing that always surprised me about the greatest generation and then things that were happening in American civil war studies was how certain generals from the American Civil War, like Nathan Bedford Forrest, yes, would be, would be up large, and there was no kind of compensation for the black soldiers or the slavery or or, or, or all the other side of that. And it <laughs> for, for me, it just took me very surprise by surprise that that you could have such extremes and yet appear to be such an even well-documented story of the American Civil War with slavery and emancipation and obviously all the rest of it, but there were these, like, important channels that were running through, like, threads that were were, were pushing towards a certain form. I, I just found that very surprising, and I think that kind of... You're kind of telling me what I thought I had at the time when I saw it. So to be clear, what is surprising to you is how people like Nathan Bedford Forrest are memorialized and in in history as as still sort of heroes for their for their military actions and, and without acknowledging their real, more unfortunate contributions to things like slavery or the Ku Klux Klan well there was that but also i think he was involved in you know the slaughter of a number of black soldiers and that, I yeah, mean, absolutely. I, and, and if I remember my story correctly, so like he had prisoners now, of war that he just egregiously murdered because of their story color of their was skin. smoothed into the overall story. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I just found it very, very odd. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's still a statue of him up, right? And, and that's, and so that in, in some ways, and I am by no means equating the heroism of, the allied soldiers and war effort to the Confederate cause. But at the same, it's the same token, the era of, of what we call the Jim Crow era in the United States, you know, the, the, during the Victorian era where that was when so many, um, 
statues of people like Nathan Bedford Forrest were erected across the United States. And I think that's a theme in, in our book where just like the the greatest generation or the good war narrative, these stories lie behind our social experience, sometimes very overtly in the form of a giant statue, but um, just in the background. And to go back, I guess, to one of the original points is like these grassroots um, narratives or these counter narratives come out of um, frustration with the, uh, per, the, the uh, pervasiveness of those kinds of narratives, because in, in point of fact, they serve to mask some pretty fundamental contradictions about what actually happened. Yeah, um, that's pretty much and as I, I saw things. And I, and I think that, and, and Ash, I think that kind of experience growing up, like a, the social experience is part of that trauma that you address in, in, in your work. Yeah, and there are definitely different perspectives on monuments. And, you know, that's definitely been a pretty, um, you know, load, uh, just fiery question all together with the communities. You know, do we tear down the statues? How do we move forward? And I, there are various different ones. And, you know, there are indigenous peoples. And I'm just going to, you know, just kind of generalize this. But, you know, they say if you take them down, people will forget. You know, are there other ways that we can go about looking at history and really getting down to what had happened? It's, you know, okay, great. We have the monuments. Let's acknowledge what had happened, even if it's so challenging and hard and really hard to stomach. I mean, if we go through the military archaeology, we, we're talking about genocide. We're talking about um, the dismantling of cultures. But, you know, are there ways where we can erect another statue or some kind of memorialization of those peoples who were, as Mark said, left behind? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of somewhat betwixt and between because in one sense you're destroying a history which is after a history, which is that the statues were built in the Jim Crow period and as a consequence they have a history. It's not so much the American Civil War history, it's after the history that has it of a history, if you like. I mean, that sounds all a bit convoluted. But when you take them down, you remove that history. So where do you put them? Yeah, I know. That's a, and that's, a, again, a question of the hour, and, that, and it's laced through some of our chapters. And but it, but that's such a that's such an argument that people use to not address the presence of these objects on the landscape because oh you're destroying history, okay so now we need a museum for the commemoration of the war maybe so, but maybe this is this is where um, you know I have an a, an opinion about this because one of the things that strikes me about statues in particular I don't know if you've ever been to Gettysburg, I but have. It, all right so if you go to Gettysburg which is a beautiful um, you know, <clears throat> pastoral Eastern landscape in the United States. It is like dotted with marble monuments that, okay, so in the language of historic preservation in the United States, you know, we talk about the, uh, the original feel of a landscape when you're assessing the, like if something should be preserved or not. And in, and in my view, uh, going to uh, Gettysburg is like, it's almost offensive how, how that, in my view, how that landscape is dotted with these marble statues, and it completely denies the feel, the original feel, to use that language we use about historic preservation. And so, in, in that sense, um, and I think I think this is a 
somewhat driving the the issue around statues. It's like the, the their very presence. You go to every town square. There's a statue of a soldier, uh, a war memorial, and yes, we certainly need to memorialize people's uh, service and 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 so forth. But there's different way different ways to uh, <clears throat> interact with a landscape um, and and be in a landscape and that sort of subtle behind the scenes everyday uh, presence of these memorials is, is in, in some ways just flat out offensive. And it's like, um, they seem, I, I, we say this in the book, they seem as natural as the flowers and the, and the tree trees and the birds, but maybe that's more what we should be celebrating in our landscape. Um, then, you know, you know, but you grow up and you think they should be there just like flowers and trees and birds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall we, shall we move on or, um, I want to go to, in your introduction, you mention a book that is highly regarded archeological perspectives on the battle of little bighorn, 1989 groundbreaking study of conflict archaeology since that book was published. There have been significant technological advances. In Chapter 9, the authors examine battlefield archaeology through the application of GIS mapping to reveal positions and directions of the fighting in several dynamic maps. Can you envisage GIS, GIS, GIS is the German term, mapping technology changing the face of how we research war? Obviously, this is me. <laughs> this is my personal question about my interest, asking you, can we move on with it? <laughs> well, certainly uh, GIS is, has revolutionized our approach to war and, and battle. And Ash, can you speak at all to the application of the GIS to something like the, in, in your chapter, the, um, the well, to the distribution of musket balls in the retreat from that battle of King Philip's War? Sure, yeah. I mean, some of the battlefields, if we're looking at them, and many of them are, they're massive battlefields. So to have them all mapped, to see the different points, where the intensity of the battles took place, but the ancillary sites, how people were distributed on the landscape we can't necessarily get a really good picture of that unless we're using GIS and really seeing it kind of come together. But when we're using it as well, we're, as we're moving along, we're getting that real time information. We're getting that feedback as we're on the battlefield itself. So we're using that technology, but also too, we use it as a communication point to work with our indigenous colleagues. So they see where we're at, they see how we're moving forward. And again, it's really having that open channel of communication between everybody who's working on the project. So it really is a great way of just getting a good visual of what's going on as it evolves, as we're working through the project. Yeah. And, you know, in the in the battles of the colonial New England, as as um, Ash and Dr. McBride have been working on them, and I, the the application of GIS has is really revolutionary in the sense. So the chapter that you're talking about is by Douglas Scott, who, who was part of the team that did that groundbreaking work at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. And to reiterate how that was revolutionary, I mean, and I believe that was at a moment when metal detectors had reached a certain threshold of practicality and portability and accessibility. And that was the initial battlefield forensic analysis from an archaeological point of view. So that was the start of our field. 
So your question relates to how then does the application of new digital technologies help push that forward? And yeah, and we have a couple of good examples in this book. And um, in the King Philip's War example, and then there's another one from the Pequot War that Dr. McBride um, you applied GIS for, where there are sent like the the common narrative, the historical history uh, narrative of the Pequot War ends at the massacre of the Pequot community on in April of 1637, if I got the date correct. And with what the Mashantucket Pequot and the University of Connecticut and Eastern Connecticut archaeologists discovered was by metal detecting across the landscape in people's backyards, if I remember correctly, they were mm-hmm. able to trace the retreat of the English soldiers and their and their indigenous allies basically hightailing out of the woods uh, back to their boats to escape because the, the, there were two principal Pequot communities and the British and their indigenous allies massacred one. They surrounded it and burned it down, men, women, and children. But the other one, uh, the, the, the indigenous people and the other one came riding to the rescue and chased the British back to their boats. And that was a story that was completely untold um, by and large until this battlefield archaeology took place that traced a string of musket balls of following the soldiers back to the boats. And again, it's not just the archaeology because that story um, was always there. And part of the cross-cutting of different kinds of data sources is if you do a fine-grained analysis of the primary sources of that battle, it's in there. They describe basically you know, running through the woods, and I might be exaggerating a little bit, back to the boats. But as Ash said, the act of doing the work on the ground, uh, mapping the musket balls across, not just in one little battlefield, but across miles of landscape, um, creates the the dialogue and data to like tell this basically a, a new story to a very important battle in colonial America. Right. And yeah, and part of the retreat mark that actually turned out to be some of the most intense part of the, the war itself. Yes. And Ash, please acknowledge your colleague. His name escapes me right now. Who did the graduate student from UConn that did that work? Ah, uh, there were many of them actually involved. Okay. I mean, I I read that book, The Battle of Little Bighorn, mm-hmm. um, almost on the day it came out. I actually bought it in Croc and Britannos in um, Chicago, and then got it on a plane and flew to London. I couldn't put it down. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just a, a, an amazing breakout of how the b- battle took place over this whole area. I mean, when when I came to work on my project, just to talk about the scale, there's 500,000 hectares of forest, 600 soldiers and 50,000 civilians. Mm-hmm. And, of course, GIS helped me manage that into a scale which was easier to work on desktop and... Mm-hmm. And I think when I looked at the the content and the maps on twenty uh, in chapter nine, I could see the same. I could see that how they'd managed to control the amount of data and information. I mean, mm-hmm. it's truly fascinating how you guys have worked this um, battlefield archaeology into into modern technology. I think that the the merger you've been able to do it much far more smoother than I could. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, in the case of Chapter 9, I have to give credit to David Mackey, Sigrid Arnaud, and Frankie, um, and Frankie Jackson, who wrote that chapter. And yeah, that's, a, I think, a textbook example of the melding of oral history, uh, GIS, and digital technology, and primary document research. And um, David Mackey is the geophysicist on that project, and he produced those maps. And the, the, the technique he used in particular was intervisibility, which basically allows you to use the digital mapping technology to uh, see what somebody at a point on the battlefield saw, like taking high gra uh, fine-grained uh, LIDAR maps um, and then putting yourself on the map and seeing, being able to see with all the little micro topography of what the other person was seeing. And in that particular, this is the, um, the Wood Lake battlefield of 1862, which is one of these lesser known um, battles in the larger historiography of military history. So in the United States, um, the, Civil, the American Civil War of the 1860s kind of revolution, helped revolutionize a lot of technological things as war often does. And in things like the telegraph and battlefield photography and reporting on the course of battles in the news on a daily basis um, accelerated after the 1860s. So if you look at a military history book, there'll, there'll be a chapter of North America, there'll be a chapter called The Indian Wars, and it begin, it'll almost always begin in the 1870s. And... Um, that's wrong. The, like, the, it, it's a unified body of things they talk about as the Indian Wars, but it begins way before that. And the fact that it is marked to begin in the 1870s is, is a, a function of the fact that it was reported in the newspapers. And there's photographs of people like Sitting Bull and, and um, Red Cloud. Um, but the Battle of Wood Lake in 1862, or the Rogue River War, of the 1850s or the Black Hawk War or these the same thing had been happening they just haven't been reported so that's actually an, as I say this that's like technology as applied uh, having an effect in how we remember these conflicts so I um so in the case of the of this Wood Lake battlefield the authors of that of that chapter include uh, Frankie Johnson who's a descendant of of people who fought in that battle and had family stories and oral histories and perspective to bring to it and speaks to that you know earlier we were talking about the good war concept and one of the problems with that uh good war concept is it posits an unreasonable dichotomy of good and evil um a strict dichotomy and in the uh dakota war that this chapter outlines how the, the exigencies and the realities of colonialism forced indigenous people to make accommodations that led to brothers and cousins being on both sides of that battlefield. And the GIS technology allowed us to see, us, the authors, to see how by the after establishing the presence of different military units, the flags on the map using GIS, 
on the in the analysis <clears throat> how those brothers and cousins could actually see them each other across the battlefield and how that actually had a an effect on the outcome of the battle. That's fascinating because chapter eight and chapter nine forced me to go back into my my small collection of um, books from that period. And I read, um, I picked up a long time ago, Alvin Josephi's book on the Civil War in the American West. And I thought, he's written, or he's called the war differently from the war you're calling it. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, there was that moment I thought, now I better not say it, but I've said it now. Um, is there a language difference here that, that has developed over time? that Josephi is talking in one vernacular and now we're into a more modern, more rich. Yeah, I think you need to spell out your question better for me. Uh, has he cha- Has the language changed of the American Civil War in the West? I mean, in terms of the analysis of it or just what we call it? Well, the way it's being called, the way it's being titled, the way indigenous instead of... Indians. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. The whole whole kit and caboodle about how the war is described and narrated. Yeah. Um, As a matter of civil war history, the actions of the Union and the Confederacy in the West uh, continues to be underreported. And then the actual language of it, certainly we prefer um, indigenous uh, over Indian. In fact, I don't think that any professional scholar these days would really use the term Indian anymore, although there are exceptions and, and some disagreement about that. Uh, the, the, the standard we chose for this book was indigenous and, or Native American, or most preferably to speak to the actual ethnicity or identities, chosen identities of the actual participants. So would that mean that certain texts would not be considered? because the language has changed? Is for, there a process? For inclusion in this book? In, in, in the way you're working. <clears throat> <clears throat> well, um, and then I'd like to hear Ash's uh, thought on this. Uh, no, I mean, I would never, no, nothing is being excluded. As an editorial process, we made decisions at, in consultation with all the authors on some of the language. Right. Um, but um, so that was an editorial decision. But I think as a matter of the culture of our field, um, that's just where everybody is moving to. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ash. um, Yeah. I was just going to say a big part of this too is again, drawing in all these different perspectives, we're doing the historiography of all of these, um, excuse my dog in the background (laughs) of all these different narratives. Um, But yeah, no, we're taking them all in to see, not only how the battlefield changed or what the perspectives were, but we want to get all those people in. So we're, we're looking at people from across the spectrum, but also too, we, we want to see how those histories really have, um, how they're being conceptualized and how they have changed the way people move on the landscape past and present. Um, but also too, from a public health perspective, how those histories have limited people uh, to to resources or why they don't interact with politics or officials or whatever it may be. Sometimes those histories tell us a little bit about, you know, on a very local level, you know, how come indigenous people don't reach out to um, the state agencies or their local organizations and so on and so on. So it's very interesting because over here there was carnival 
um, which is very big religious community uh, event. And of course, quite a few Germans like to dress in Native American um, clothes. And of course, there was a debate whether they should be called Indians or Indigenous or Native Americans, or why are they doing it in the first place? And and so, you know, the the two languages of the two sides of the Atlantic, it's very interesting how they're developing. So some of the old races are still um, common over here. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's an in- we know that story that there is a um, that there is a community of people in Germany that like to dress up. Now, of course, all of us are encounter reenactors in our work to one form or another. I was just down in Huila, Mexico uh, for the 176th anniversary of the Battle of Buena Vista, the Mexican-American War. And there were um, there were um, local Mexican people dressed in uniforms of the Mexican army. So like that's a really interesting thing about sort of memory and commemoration of history. And in our book, there's. there's a an account of the this a sculpture called uh, the scaffold, and part of this this Dakota U.S. War in 1862 included the mass execution. I'm trying to of 38 uh, Dakota men um, right, yeah. who were captured after that battle. So many of them, I believe, were captured in that battle or the larger war, and it was one of the largest mass executions of in American history. And, and thinking about how, I mean, so that was, a, that was a bad thing, obviously. So part of the historical memory that is weaved into that, that we talk about in the book is how this sculpture, I'm looking up his name now, Durant, um, created this, this sculpture that he, and he meant as a restorative justice thing, like he's going to commemorate the, the unjust deaths of these men who were basically fighting for their own country in a just war and that he brought this sculpture to Europe first, where it was greeted with great uh, accolades. Uh, People loved it. And then he brought it to Minnesota, Minneapolis, where the execution took place. And I think to his surprise, it got a very different reception. It was, um, basically it became, it was like, it it almost, if I know this, remember the story correctly, it was a children's, doubled as a children's play structure and um, the local community there both indigenous and settler rejected it resoundedly and it ended up being by collective agreement burned to the ground and and behind it all is this is this um, settler artist who was in his mind trying to do the right thing and do this thing to commemorate it but didn't appreciate that creating this scaffold would and ash can speak to this better than me but would cause harm by regurgitating this historical trauma suffered by this community. So the reason I'm telling this story is I'm thinking about how the context of a white person dressing as an Indian, an indigenous person would be received very differently in Germany and than it would be in the United States. And this, the, um, the bottom line is, is no white person uh, should or will dress as an Indian person in the United States anymore if they have any kind of conscious, I suppose. But that that is kind of decontextualized, I think, in, in Germany, where you have some kind of distance. We look at that with a fair amount of eyes wide, I, I would say. 
Um, I don't know if I should tell you, but my family were expelled in 1847 from Mexico. Is that right? As yeah. part of that war? Yeah. Um, half of them were Native Americans, Coronado family. Uh-huh. And, and a, another section were Casasolas. And mm-hmm. they, they ended up in Scotland in 1850. Wow. I have absolutely no idea. And my great-grandfather would not allow me to, <laughs> to know much about it, apart from telling me that that was our history. Yeah. Anyway. In Beyond the Battlefield, the authors reconstruct a rich tapestry of race, gender, and identity. Does this come from the rigour of anthropology, or is it the consequence of in-depth field and archival research? kind of goes from what we said before, but I wanted us to dig a bit deeper. I mean, obviously, we haven't got enough time, so, you know, it had to be very general. Sure. Ash, do you want to say something to this? Um, I would would say both, right? I mean, there's just so much going on as far as... You know, the, the deeper you look and the deeper you use these different technologies and the communications, you're going to get a complexity that comes up. You're going to get these uh, various different fields coming together to really explore and explain the battlefield. So, yeah, both. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I also think that, again, our generation of scholars, um, you know, we we grew up professionally always working with local communities, whereas the generation before us had a more royal um, approach to their work. And so the, the act, and this is a theme that's throughout the book, all of these projects are grounded in projects that are in the community. And when you're working next to somebody, and even if you don't agree with them or their vision of the past, just the mere fact that you're doing archaeological field work, which is inherently physical and tactile and community building forces you to grapple with like different people's perspectives. So I think um, the act of doing the work together has driven part of the, oh, and this I'm talking about archaeology in North America over the last 20, 30 years has driven a greater degree of inclus- inclusivity in our perspectives. And so I don't know how any archaeologist working in the Americas, in North America today, could not address those issues given the political and social landscape in which we work. Do you spend a lot of time in the field? I mean, um, well, it, it varies. I'm a university lecturer, professor, and um, um, I'm getting older, so I don't spend as much time as I used to. But yeah, every summer uh, I'm doing I'm doing some kind of project. Yeah, likewise. It's it's if the weather's nice, we take full advantage of it. If the weather's nice, yes, yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If we can move on, how far does social media play an important part in your writing and research? And can you explain how that's how that works or doesn't, as the case may be? And I just draw you to the the comment in the Saipan chapter about uh, YouTubers in the caves. Yeah. That's a complex question, right? So I don't know. I think any kind of any kind of communication of the results of archaeological or historical research is is a good thing, right? We get into our little cul-de-sacs and we're paid by ultimately by public money, so we should be disseminating what we do to the to a larger audience. Um, and that's a good thing. And certainly, social media has played a part in it. Um, 
and ever more so that we we use social media to track our progress in field projects. But of course, you know, there's there's so many disadvantages to to um, to social media as um, where sometimes I think like the personality, like it becomes more like almost like a celebrity, uh, a celebrity endeavor and all the the baleful aspects that that entails. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's a, yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I would say definitely along those lines, it's great to build, have platforms to build excitement about the projects. So support. Um, yeah, I'm definitely getting the word out too. And I think it is one of these things too. If we're going to talk about some of the sites, we if we're going to get the information out, we're generalizing here. We're not giving specifics on where certain things are to protect those sites, especially if they are on private property and so on. So there's a very delicate way of doing it. So still building up the excitement while protecting some of the sites is it's a you get a step finally. Yeah, and 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 it also seems to me thinking about it a little bit further that you know there as academics we have some subtle messages and complex stories we want to tell, and those aren't always um, amenable in a tweet. And of course, our society is largely suffering the consequences of that of overly simplified messages or, um, and again, Ash, you could, what is it that gets triggered in your brain when someone tells you exactly what you want to hear, you know, an endorphin rush or whatever it is. And maybe, maybe we're losing some degree of capacity to sit quietly and really listen and follow a complex story arc with lots of moving parts over a like a 400 page book rather than a 280 character tweet right right and those sometimes can be gateways to these books to these resources to these museums uh and other you know projects online projects you know that are really really more in depth you know there needs to be a way of hey these resources exist and let's find a way to funnel people toward those yeah. But the last thing you want after you've done an awful lot of work on a site is to have gangs of people taking selfies of themselves. Do you? You know, right. kind of, it's kind of counter, kind of counterproductive, surely. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's like a fetishization of of precisely yeah. so many different things, you know. Yeah. 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 Which is, you know, to go back to an earlier point, is part of what we're trying to counteract are these monolithic, binary, you know, overly normative, essentialized kinds of arguments. And and for all of its communicative potential, I think social media definitely runs against that often. Yeah, unfortunately, what I found with social media is it accentuates the myths and the fantasies and the legends of, of, of wars and you're forever looking at people and saying, oh, my gosh, are you really going to go down that road again? Um, yeah. I think social media is very dangerous for that because it's easy to say, well, you know, the British won the Battle of Britain. Yeah, okay, fine. So they won the Battle of Britain. But you're stuck with that kind of constant uh, simplistic um, storyline, the myth, the legend, the fantasy. And, and it just gets recycled. Right, and the cult of personality. And, like, I see going by on my twitter feed or my social media or what the internet feeds to me it's like autographed pictures of adolf galland you know who you know i read his book as a as a young person and it it taught me a lot and it's a and he's an interesting character but suddenly 
you know, Eric Hartman or Adolf Gallen or people, um, you know, I used to build models of their airplanes, but that's getting turned into like some, again, like people dressing up as Indians. It's like this weird fetish of why are we uh, celebrating that in that particular way? Well, I deconstructed Gallant, so you better not read my tweets because I've just shown some of these content to have been out and out lies. Um, is that right? In the yeah. first and the last? Yeah. Yeah, the first and the last is, uh, you know, as we say, a tissue of tosh. Um, yeah. But anyway, so if we can move on to look at, you know, some of the bigger pictures, and, we, and you've mentioned some of this already, so I'd, if we could just kind of run through them, because I think they're very interesting. You, you you mentioned Kevin McBride and his involvement on the Pequot War. Um, he mentioned that um, should a monument be removed, they will forget. Now, I'd like to draw you to the comment that, that immediately made me think, in Germany there's an understandable desire to demolish all things Nazi, while the national leaders almost order the public to not forget the Holocaust. And my question would be, how, how do we prevent forgetting the physical, forgetting when the physical architecture of the past is constantly being eroded? I think it's difficult. I think, you know, when we look at, say, intergenerational trauma or historical trauma, you're going to have to get into the nitty gritty, really hard to stomach details in order to move forward. That's part of the processing. Um, but, you know, it, it's tricky to say because... You know, we tend to have, and I say we, and I, a couple of my colleagues and I, you know, McBride and so on. The idea is, you know, it's better than having nothing that tells a story until we begin to erect statues or histories that have these really inclusive perspectives. You know, there has to be something in place to remember these events, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, again, that's like a story of our time. And, and how do you, you know, as scholars, we write books that have, I mean, how many people read, will read this book compared to who will walk by a statue of somebody or watch Graham Hancock on Netflix or something? It's like, and yeah, where do you find the, how do you find the arena in which to provide this? provide some kind of reasonable or, or measured historical analysis that'll resonate um, with the public. I mean, obviously there are some, some good authors, uh, Philip Blood among them who can, yes. who can, who can reach a wider audience with an academic, you know, with, with, and still keep it on the academic side, you know? Turn it around. How many people read it? Who do you want to read it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think this book is accessible to someone who's not an archaeologist or a professional historian who has an interest in history and colonialism and and military history for sure. So I would hope that it could um, maybe it's not going to be like a Nathaniel Philbrook book uh, in terms of its popular appeal. But maybe somewhere in, in between that and, you know, a, an academic journal article. I mean, I, personally, I, when I saw it straight away, I thought it's on the same trajectory as the archaeological study of Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you've jumped 30 years now. Yes. So there's that book, which was a pure delight for me. 
yes. pick this one up, and that's a pure delight too because it, we're now in we're now in today, and and the future, and it and it struck me that you're telling us your book's telling us that that's the future. Yeah, and I think you know there was a nice concordance of events there where you know I, I spent my early career in the Northeast and then I moved to the West Coast of North America and started doing work in Oregon. And um, I had gone back to the Mashantucket Pequot Museum to participate in a military history conference, the um, fields of, what's it called? The Fields of Conflict Biennial Conference, which brings together military archeologists. And Ash and Kevin McBride hosted that at the Pequot Museum. And while I was there, I had read uh, a book by uh, Christina DeLucia, who's uh, one of our authors. And she wrote this. She's a historian, not an archaeologist. And, and she wrote this beautiful book called Memory Lands, which was a, uh, a reanalysis of um, the King Philip's War. And it, it wasn't this narrative, hist- a new narrative history. But what it was, was it looked at how King, an event like King Philip's War of 1675, 1680, which at the time was this major traumatic event for all concerned, but is now ancient history, so to speak, but how it continues to haunt our physical and social memory and landscape in the most subtle of ways, like the names of a shopping mall named King Philip Shopping Mall, or you talk about selfies, like um, and I might have the story a little bit wrong, uh, but like the location where King Philip was ultimately captured is a place in Rhode Island. And if you go on to Instagram, you'll see people posing with selfies, like in dramatic uh, influencer fashion poses on top of this thing. Right. So that was her, uh, Dr. DeLucia's book was, was pretty influential also in the construction of this book because she said, you know, what's is to think about the, um, the hauntology, like how these traumatic events haunt our landscape. So in, um, at the risk of like framing it as like, this is the next step in conflict archeology. span It was very purposeful that we asked and were honored to have, um, Dr. Scott Douglas Scott from who started conflict Ar- battlefield archeology span with little bighorn introduced the book and then have uh, Dr. DeLucia write the concluding chapter um, because I think that is kind of the future and not to take, take it beyond the battlefield, not just the, um, you know, the straight narrative of battlefield, but how we remember it and the political agendas behind that. Yes. You, you just mentioned hauntology and it's the next question I like to raise because on, you know, war modern war is hauntingly violent. Um, and this chapter on hauntology and extreme violence is, to be honest, I found it fascinating. Um, yes. Can you explain to the listener how hauntology can inform research into the darker recesses of war and extreme violence? Yeah, I, I yeah, hauntology is a concept um, from philosophy and history that archaeologists are increasingly um, using, and at least two of the authors. Um, Matthew Liebman and Rob Mann employ it explicitly. But as we put this volume together, it, it, I came to appreciate that it permeates all the chapters to some extent. And um, the chapter that deals with um, 
17th century New Mexico, basically the Pueblo revolt against Spanish conquest and uh, a major battle that occurred there. And like many of the other chapters, it starts with a battlefield analysis, metal detectoring over this mesa where Spanish soldiers attacked a, a town of uh, Pueblo indigenous people. And the author talks about the fact that um, both sides in the battle framed the narrative in terms of what we would might call supernatural entities like and miracles of 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 indigenous people diving off a cliff to like in a Mossad kind of sacrifice only to be miraculously survived and he uses that as a jumping off point to think about um you know when when you tell a celebratory story of a confederate general or your generation of people continues to not have equal access to society because of sustained generational trauma that could without even being metaphysical about it that could all be conceptualized as as how the past haunts us and again going back to that greatest generation or the good war model that that narrative where hauntology is useful because it it um that it points out that that celebratory narrative hides a lot of trauma that uh, our parents and grandparents who gave us so much privilege as, as a, you know, a, a, a white person in the United States that gave, gave us so much privilege from what they accomplished in the 1940s and fifties. But at the same time, many of them were kind of white knuckling through it, you know, how they, you know, they were the trauma they suffered in world war two, either as, um, people growing up in the Blitz or the Holocaust or in my family's case on Nazi occupation of Denmark, you know, that had subtle traumas that permeated and created certain kinds of um, problems that they were dealing with throughout their lives and their offspring. And again, that's not even talking about indigenous people who suffered generations of settler colonialism. So hauntology is a really interesting uh, concept that way and it can bleed into the metaphysical um some people would think of it as literally haunting the landscapes when i was visiting the battle of buena vista la angostura the 1847 mexican war battlefield just last week we were with um mexican scholars mexican military personnel and um members of the public and it was and many people described feeling and i'm sure anyone in military history has had this experience they there was a range of opinions of some people feeling the physical presence of the death of thousands of people around them right and the cynical scientist is like that's nonsense but it's not nonsense it's like that's like trauma and memory and social experience like um impacting us and i think ontology captures that I mean, my immediate thoughts on it were two. Um, the first was the um, the supposed images that turned up in the First World War. I think it was the Angel of Mons. Um, but a more political form was after the German army surrendered at Stalingrad in 19, February 1943, uh -huh. the, the, German Nazi, the Nazi newspaper created an image of the face of a German soldier who is tin hat very haunting image yeah. with the people below and decades later people who even had relatives had died or fought at stalingrad remembered the image more than they remembered the tales and the stories yes because the newspaper was 
was so captivating. It had such an impact. Um, people could still recall that 50 right. years later. And, then, and, a, and a similar story is the flag raising on Iwo Jima, right? And that's an image that in some ways stands for the entire Pacific War and the greatest generation. And and another parallel thread of the contemporary um, historical analysis is is like deconstructing the complexity of how that image was made, remembered, and its rel- relationship to historical accuracy, right? But it, it just... And to go back to an earlier point, it's like we're not going to tear down the Iwo Jima Memorial in Arlington Cemetery because it's not accurate, like it was staged. But at the same time, it's like it's not actually teaching history correctly in the sense that it's not historically accurate, right? Mm -hmm. But it is a very powerful image that haunts our landscape, just like the Stalingrad image. And I'm sure we can come up with many. And Ash, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm trying to search my memory. There is a, I remember a Pequot's telling a story about something that like a, a, a rock embedded in people's palms that persisted after the Pequot war. Do you, does that ring a bell for you? Um, not really. Oh, I was trying to remember the story. <laughs> I know there are, you know, I keep thinking about the bloody rhododendrons. So it kind of goes back to more of the natural landscape. Well, uh, tell us that. Cause maybe that's what I'm remembering. Okay. Yeah. So following the, you know, the mystic fort battle, May 26, 1637, the Pequots who flee, flee, and they, you know, they flee for cover in a swamp-like area. And many of the Pequots who did flee were, were killed. And the saying is, is that, you know, you will remember you will remember the blood you shed. And there are particular rhododendrons that grow on the reservation that have kind of like these these red-like speckles or spots. Yeah, yep. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's something that haunts the landscape as a legacy of trauma. Mm-hmm. Do, these ever, do these haunted landscapes ever get exercised? Or do they come back in a different form? That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. What would you mean by come back in a different form? So if you've cleared it all away and the, and the evidence has passed and we've moved on and we've forgotten, does it does memory of what actually happened then come back again in a different shape, in a different format? Um, I'm just thinking if... if um, I don't know, the Battle of Arkham was restaged as actually more about the Nazis trying to invade the city rather than um, the Americans coming in and capturing it, uh, whether that would lead to a different narrative of the battle, even though it was incorrect or it was based in myth or, you know, from that kind of thing. The complete reversal change, but exercised. So you've taken out the old history, you put in a new history, and that history is incorrect. So, yeah. yeah, and I think another way, and I don't think I have an answer to the question, but and, and I think except to ask another question is like, what? How can you actually heal trauma, right? which in my mind would to be more personally and psychologically healthy and to have a healthy appreciation of the past events that happened rather than if it's possible, sort of a 
sort of mythological lie, to put it, put it bluntly, about the past. So again, going back to the greatest generation, and again, I'm not trying to say that that's a completely false narrative. It's not. But to what extent is the the celebration of that uh, an act of healing or moving forward or acknowledgement of sacrifice in a cautionary tale against fascism? And I guess to answer my own question, you know, we've had 60, 70 years of that narrative and now we're facing fascism again, you know, a, a land war in Ukraine and, and um, the sort of strain on democracy and whatnot. So, yeah, so I'm not sure how, if we've been able to, if the, I'm not sure if the greatest generation narrative has helped push us um, comfortably past all that. Yeah, it, it, in one sense, it drew a line on what we knew, but in another sense, it created a new history and a new dynamic, which kind of makes everybody, I don't know, a bit difficult. Um, I mean, we're going beyond where we're, <laughs> we're doing things that I promised I wouldn't do, which is enjoying your book. Um, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to do the best for you, yes. Um, so let's move on rapidly before we descend down any more holes. Um, Manifest Destiny, it comes, uh, it's mentioned quite often in the book, mm-hmm. um, or a certain amount, and, and it kind of reflecting it com- in comparison with what's happened with the British Empire. Of course, there was the period of decolonization, the empire was behind us, we all forget about it. Then suddenly you see this post-decolonization revival of the empire, and everybody's saying, well, the empire was actually really lovely. Um, Niall Ferguson going around saying, well, you know, the British Empire ran around being nice to people. Um, and, and that's now kind of flown into the uh, flowed into Brexit debates and British ideas of, you know, global Britain. And I just wondered, we can see it over here. You know, what we can't see over there is whether Manifest Destiny has been supercharged in the 21st century from the kind of history that's been going on and I'm just wondered your opinion of it. Uh, yeah. Although I don't know if this gets us into the book or in a way from contemporary politics. Um, oh, it's a good question. Yeah, Manifest Destiny permeates this book as an ideology to, to basically rationalize bad behavior. And... Uh, yeah, and in the contemporary political landscape, um, it's at the heart of it's at the heart of some political agendas. You know, like um, it, in modern social science, we might frame it as um, white grievance. <laughs> so let, the let, me take it back, let me just take it back to your book. Okay, <laughs> if I read your book. I wouldn't think that Manifest Destiny was a good thing for America. Yeah, although I guess it depends on on good for who. Um, the the ideology of manifest destiny drove um, the some of the the best I guess best parts of American culture, which is sort of optimism and innovation or democracy or whatever. But it also um, but it also it wasn't good in the sense that it drove it created a sense of privilege and that excuse a lot of bad behavior or the massacre of indigenous people, the genocide of indigenous people, the conquest of about a third or whatever the percentage is of Mexico and the Mexican American war. So 
it wasn't good. It, 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 it set up the stage for some of the worst aspects of American imperialism and racism. And it was explicitly a racialized identity. It didn't necessarily start that way, but it, it progressively became a racialized, uh, I, not identity, ideology. Do you have any thoughts, Ash, on Manifest Destiny? Uh, I think Mark summed it up pretty well, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move on. <laughs> a sense we should move on. Um, so, you know the questions. Regardless of politics, do academics have a duty to re-examine and refresh accepted narratives with the passing of generations, or is it the primary duty of guardianship of established national memory? And I'm saying that from the context of your book and from the foreword by Professor Chacal. Yeah, that, this is, a, of course, an age-old academic question of pure research versus applied research. And and I think that's an easy call for me. Uh, I think with all due humility and all due um, attention to detail and care that we have to acknowledge ourselves as political actors. We are a part of crafting ideology and everything like Douglas Scott's work in the 1980 created a, a um, an, an agenda that fed the identities of many archaeologists. So everything we do is a political act. So you have to have at least an eye towards um, doing the right thing, um, questioning received narratives, uh, um, making the assumption that the, what someone said before you is to some extent a political has has a political agenda, and that might be something that's fighting the good fight, but not just accepting received wisdom on its face. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, just looking at the narratives and putting them all together. Um, but I'll say in the field too, whenever we're doing archaeology, we make sure not to take all the artifacts from the ground, knowing full well that other generations are going to come back and have their interpretation. And we, you know, that's something that needs to be welcomed that, there are going to be other interpretations. There's going to be new technologies. There's going to be evolutions of, of our understandings of these battlefields. That's right. Yeah. And that's the humility piece, which of course academics aren't always the best at, you know, acknowledging. Yeah. Um, one more. Um, so addressing the concerns of any military historians listening to us today, yes. <laughs> do you think academic military history can adjust to the technological and scientific advances that your book has, um, has revealed to us? Do, I, do we think that it can adjust or yes. should adjust? Yeah, uh, I, I think it, I, it absolutely can adjust and, and should adjust. You know, I, um, I think there's always... Um, if the if the if the scale of an, of discussion here is between the most dry narrative history and tactical flags on maps and embedding everything in social history and restorative justice or political action, and of course it's there's never going to be a one size fit all. We still need to train, for example, military military officers, so staff college work and and, and analytical tactics. But as someone who teaches in officer training at my university, it's like you've got to be able – I believe that we should be able to do this, but also 
taken on that side of the spectrum of the, what historians do is how could a historian ever teach a military officer just the flags and the maps without asking them to consider the social culture and historical context in which past military officers worked or future military hist uh, officers would work. So um, to request that military history move beyond, you know, just narrative history and think about how their stories question or confirm problematic aspects of patriotism or uh, white supremacy or whatever the case might may be is when they say nothing when a military history historian says nothing about social context and reduces it to flags and maps they are oftentimes implicitly um, you know um, implicitly supporting very problematic agendas like of white supremacy or fascism or whatever yeah yeah um, I maybe it's just just a little um, something a little bit outside the book but I mean think of military officers or uh, military operations you know when they are waged in different countries a part of the process is preserving their history and culture and not having that scorched earth policy of taking down buildings and really full-scale dismantling of history right so I think mm -hmm. When we look at it through multiple different, you know, infield, out of field, military archaeology, regular archaeology, I think there needs to be these discussions of how do we preserve and how do we, um, you know, again, collectively look at that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I find it interesting that anybody would want to teach um, a, an army officer just the battle on a map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When, when actually, if you interrogate the papers of the the generals and the colonels who fought the, those battles back in the day, you can see that they're putting. I mean, I'll use Arkan again as an instance. The American soldiers were putting together rations for the locals who were caught up in the fighting and were in the city as the siege was taking place. And it and it struck me as interesting. You've got American armored fighting units. Their commanders are spending some of their time actually taking out time to rescue civilians, mm -hmm. but that's not in the narrative. No, mm -hmm. no. Yeah, and again, and I think it's a theme of our book having, and it's it's not something that often has currency or popularity today in our echo chamber social media kind of environment, but having. Different voices, even when they're uncomfortable speaking to us. Um, the context of the chapter I wrote in this book had to do with a, a civilian fort during the wars with indigenous people in the 1850s. And when we did that archaeology work, we explicitly invited members of indigenous communities and the local community, which were the descendants of the settlers who were fighting the Indians, in to have uh, talks and. In, in a way that that was some of the most productive part of that whole project, even though it didn't doesn't always translate into academic work, but the actual on the ground dialogue and we actually and if you kind of create a, um, a environment where people with divergent points of view can feel safe to talk to each other and and that was really um, profoundly sort of uh, rewarding for me in, in this kind of work. And the same thing with the staff. Uh, work I do when you have present and future military officers speaking to anthropologists and indigenous people on top of a war 
of a battlefield of the indigenous wars and their their collective ancestors were actually killing each other on that spot but then they're like sharing lunch and finding musket balls and actually having some productive dialogue right that's the Mm -hmm. good stuff um i think we're going to draw to a halt and as we wrap up the podcast can i ask you what are your next projects um so i'm working on two i'm developing two projects one has to do with the mexican-american war the uh in the 1850s in oregon which i've been spending my last 15 years on studying the uh, settler colonialism there i came to realize that many of and it has to do with this concept of manifest destiny that many of the settlers that came to oregon were veterans of the mexican war and they had learned their particular version of manifest destiny such as this is my hypothesis from their experiences in the mexican war and so in in the last year i've been developing a partnership with the uh, university in Coahuila, Mexico to conduct a battlefield archaeology project at the Battle of Buena Vista, uh, which the Mexicans call La Angostura. And um, I think if we're, we're working on our permits right now, but uh, if all goes well, we'll be doing battlefield archaeology on that site uh, this summer. And it'll be a collaborative project with the local museum and um, archaeologists from Mexico and historians in Mexico and um, that's that's the main thing I'm going to be working on, hopefully, in the coming years. Ash? Yeah, um, right now I'm, I'm diving deep into a little bit more on Native American medicine and Native American herbalism, uh, working in the clinical sense to just seeing the applied application of many of these different medicines and using culture uh, for some local initiatives on just teaching preventative health, teaching the importance of uh, cultural and building strong identities um, that are can be used for different programs, especially for substance abuse um, or drug abuse. So you're, you're not going to be working so much in the historical fields or the archaeological field lately, more of the more up to date, yes? A little bit, yeah. I mean, we still go to the, the archaeological record to figure out what people were using pre and post conflict. Um, and seeing what evidence is in the archaeological record and what is in the written record. So again, we're using we're using both whatever evidence we possibly can and draw it all together to get a really good sense of um, moving forward and what medicine looks like to to various different peoples today. Well, that sounds fascinating, and thank you very much for joining me today, both of you, both of you, Mark and Ash. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for having us. It was a pleasure.